I'm going to offer a provocation. Yeah! We love this! Let's go. And the provocation is... Welcome to Surviving Society. With Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today. Actually, like, super, super, super excited. So much so. Energy. Too much energy. George is getting frustrated with us because it's taken us so long to actually start this show. Because Mal- Because Malcolm, me, Malcolm and Tisa are just so excited to all be in the room talking <laughs> black scholarship. Um, Malcolm Richards is here in the studio with us today. Malcolm is an independent <laughs> researcher at the University of Exeter, not long before Malcolm Malcolm finishes his PhD. Um, Malcolm is a scholar activist, an educator, teacher, bookshop owner. And Malcolm's research is focused on dialogue, black identities and culture in English and Welsh schools. Is it primary schools, secondary schools or all of it? All of it. Wow. Blessing, blessing, blessing. I needed, wow. you know what I needed? I needed, I needed entrance music. You did, you did. <laughs> oh, you brought up the entrance music. Tune. Listeners, do you know what me and Tisa talk about more than maybe anything is like entrance music. <laughs> I do dream you know of what, it. Do you know what, do you know what my new, my new idea, my new favourite entrance music is? Tony, Tony's theme from Scarface. Kind of it's quite, it's quite good, isn't it's it? Kind of no lyrics, no lyrics. What's, your, what's yours? Uh, page you go, no we. Always. And that, so, Always. What about good life? No? no. That's when I'm happy. That's when you're when happy. When I'm street, when I'm fucking up, no we. What's your in- entrance music, Mark? Rasta Manchan. Cut that. Mine the Whalers. Oh, yeah. nice. Oh, it's an age thing. I can't keep a contemporary, but yeah. No, no it, it, covers, it covers a variety of music genres anyway. This is really exciting um, to have you in the studio because there's so much to talk about. But for the listeners... Please, can you explain who you are and how you came to be doing this research? My mum's a teacher, one. So yep. let's start there. That's, I, I'm going to describe my mum as Groundation Stone. So she became a te- teacher in 1984. North London Polytechnic, which is now London Met, and bless up London Met family. Mm. Um, we were born and bred in Hackney. And so, um, yes, and she became a teacher as a, as a mature student. She had kids, us. Um, living on a obviously living in Holly Street and then London London Fields then not London Fields now for those who are in London and know what I'm talking pre-gentrification. about pre-gentrification pre, pre-gentrification okay. I think there was about two different zones of gentrification so 70s, 80s you know the real, real time and and so um, and so I think um, my mum going through this journey of education and, and I guess a household where education was always valued in a particular way. It was perceived as being something that was truly transformative, was an important thread that um, um, uh, ran through the family. I was academically good. You know, I was, I went to school, I enjoyed learning. I used to have five books from the CLR James Library when it was CLR James Library. In, in Hackney. Look at me making all these references. To no, it's that, important. The listeners that, need to hear the references. I'm, I'm Bring the references. Um, it is going to the Africa Centre for the various events. I'm a graduate of the supplementary school movement. Um, and I think it's important to dis- begin to describe ourselves as graduates of that movement because that almost demands that we are respecting the value of the experience, regardless of how long we were part of it. And I went to two supplementary schools, um, Justina McKell in Clapton and Dimbale Education Centre in Dalston. 
and so and my mum was a teacher in those spaces as well so you can see again like my mum truly believed in the power of this thing that we're calling education but also recognised that the education that was happening in them their spaces is not for us you're not going to get what you need to receive and so carving out spaces and making spaces where that can happen is really important whether that's in the home whether that's in your community whether that is in um, your community institutions but in addition to that retaining a hope I won't even call it a belief retaining a hope that you could potentially offer some kind of transformation in the system was important as well and so mum becoming a teacher um, was an important part of that. That was a long answer. And No, no, no. It's really important, Malcolm. And I just want to kind of pick apart a tiny bit of us talking about how we have generationally, intergenerationally valued and understood the importance or the transformative power for education for our black sense of self. And what I mean by this is sometimes people misunderstand or misrecognise this history as something that was related to social mobility that mm. came later it was about what this can do for us as a people it's not it wasn't about well this is what my what my understanding is right. so that I feel like we sometimes get at a bit of a crossroads the projection of education being about creating more black middle class or creating social mobility etc is something that was put onto us and actually like what you're talking about with your mum and the community and, and gra graduating from supplementary education it was always about loving a black sense of self and seeing education as being an important part of that rather than being about social mobility and capitalism like, like you said the money <laughs> the, the money comes later yeah um maybe as a consequence of those activities and to a certain extent there is that intergenerational confusion happened maybe at the same time as Thatcherism, the yes. allure of Tony Blair's new quote-unquote Britannia. What, was, what did David, uh, David Cameron say? We're post-racial? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we had a 30-year period where um, those of us who were in that supplementary school movement, those of us who were in schools beginning to work in education. I did 100 jobs before I was a teacher, you know, cleaner, whatever. Mm -hmm. So again, it's part of that that belief in the idea of social mobility, we almost wouldn't have associated that that kind of um, use of education as empowerment with the idea of being part of a black middle class. We don't even use that language when we're describing yes. ourselves now. Yes. We we have fallen in, we look at this, very broad weeds. Yeah. <laughs> Family, I don't mean everybody, but mm. I'm talking generally in lots of the interactions that I have. We have, we have got ourselves into a situation to a certain extent where we um, have adopted some of the languages of our family across, I'm going to use the quote-unquote left. Mm. Um, and I mean that in its broad, broad, broadest sense. I don't necessarily mean the Labour Party, or, or but across the left. Socialist thinking peoples yeah. um, who have historically been associated with our black and brown communities in the UK. And so some of the rhetoric that you often hear for people who have um, made that economic progress or ascended to, to middle class because they live in a big house on... I'm gonna, in Oberdestin Road in Stamford Hill and they live they live in the life is that oh no but I'm middle class because my mum was a minor. Education was always something that was valued within your household, within where you were growing up. What next? The value Becoming of, a teacher. Yeah, no, I avoided that for twenty five years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to put myself so seeing my mum go into education, seeing other um educators from the community, I'm gonna I'll use the phrase black educators, but mm. I kind of mean it more broadly than that. I'm sure we'll get onto those those definitions at a later point. Um, I, I, 
my ex- my experiences of watching my mum go to various conferences as a member of the Nas- National Union of Teachers, which has more recently become the NEU, um, as a trade union activist, she was part of the supplementary school movement, part of those kind of community hubs where you're supporting, you know, raising a village, come on, mm. that's why it's on the t-shirts, mm. um, was I saw the work. And to, in honesty, I was here for the work, but I wasn't really here for that level of work. What we're talking about, what we, what what the requirement isn't just to maybe go and volunteer at your supplementary school or your community organisation for a morning. It literally is, you are in effect saying, I am going to put my community before myself and maybe my family. Mm-hmm. That's the commitment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or that's what we mean when we make the commitment. Mm-hmm. So it is <laughs> a way of life. That's what you're signing up to. Mm-hmm. You're signing up to not just, oh yeah, I do this great charitable work. I'm signing up to a way of life. And I think I recognised that my mum had signed up hook, line and sympathy. And also my grand had and my granddad and my family had signed up to it. Mm. And I decided that I wasn't, but they, I had didn't want to sign up to it or I did, but not in that way. But also the whole of the community invested a lot in me. Mm. I was, I'm going to, I, I don't mean it in a big headed way. I mean it in, I was the one. No, so you, yeah. you represent the kind of, the, the possibility. Of, yeah, the possibility of all that work, all that commitment, right. all that, it's that dedication to a vocation. You're maybe the one. You're yeah. maybe, and the one isn't the one who's going to be the best, I guess today it's the one who's going to be the best sports person in the, or it's going to be. No, you're, you're going to really that neoliberal gene, man. You're going to cross over, man. You're going to be, yeah, it. And, I, and you're going to be, a, you're, you're going to do it for all of us. Mm-hmm. Heavy is the head, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and if we think about, Fast forward 30 years, and I ran away from that responsibility. Mm. I need to own my stuff as well. I ran away from that far because heavy is the head. It's too much. Too much. No, no, you can't give that to anyone. But one little skinny, <laughs> dry-legged you in, mm. in, uh, in, 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 on London Fields, you can't, you can't. But we do, we do still constantly. do that. Constantly, constantly do that to young people. But, but you see, sorry, let's go back. In that intergenerational bit there, do you think... The people knowing that the system, they misread that. They misunderstood what they were doing. Even though, even though they understand they were operating in a racialized, gendered, classed world, they thought that by education alone, the opportunity will change this. Given that, given that this system has stripped you, you're not start, we're not starting from equal bases here. The people that came over, like I was reading um, Bernard Cord's um how the Western child became educated subnormal. People came over with minimal education themselves and invested in the idea that knowledge is power. So I'm quoting Francis Bacon here on Absolutely. purpose here, right? So the idea that knowledge is power. So these kids get, go to school and get more knowledge and somehow take all this power. But that's not what happened. That's, that, that, that was never going to happen, but yet they invested in that dream. I'm going to offer a provocation. Yeah! Oh, we yeah. love this! Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Let's go. And the provocation is... Mm. And I guess it's this is this speaks to being reflective and looking back. I'm well, talking about my life in it. So I'm this looking is back, where I'm at, man. You live right? looking back. I'm from. looking back as opposed to being in the moment. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with being in the moment, but I'm I'm in a reflective space at the moment, I guess. And so I wonder, and I guess I've come to learn to believe that those elders and ancients weren't operating in a now situation. They weren't. The expectation was not for immediate rewards. There was an absolute expectation that they would not receive the benefits of the seeds that they were planting. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, I know I talk about being an educator and we talk about working in education or thinking about transformation, but we 
whether we like it or not, we are we are we have learned to be accustomed to quick rewards and instant gratification of our successes, whether that's I've worked really hard in the last two years and so therefore I expect to get the pay rise. But I believe now that our elders and ancients, they didn't have that expectation. And so me being the pick, as I'm describing it, um, they wouldn't describe it as that, is more about you're the seed. Mm. Yeah, and this reminds me then of something that I think Tiso and I have tried to talk about or come to terms with quite a lot on this show is that this kind, our kind of small contribution through knowledge production, through dialogical knowledge production, is not something which we will see the benefits of within our lifetime. And George always says to us, are you sure like, there might be a day, like there might be a date of when you, we do benefit and me and Tia are like, no, no, but it's not see, us. But when you came here, when they came here, and if you think about it again, intergener- intergenerationally, we understood that our gra- our parents or my grandparents, we the ones that they will eat that shit. Mm. Then in the seven eighties, I'm not looking to take that shit. Mm. By the time you came to my job, I don't want to defer that enjoyment anymore mm. because I'm born here. So I have a certain expectation of, of a lifestyle. I am part of this. So I want my enjoyment now. But they're now telling you, T, you can have that taken away from you. You do I, not belong here. Like as in, no. I will take your passport. Mm. As, do you know what I mean? I understand so that's, but, but, that's, but, yeah. but the, the mindset, the way the mindset is, when you're born, so for example, again, I was looking at again, the, the Bengali, uh, Bengali uh, immigrants that came over in the eighties. Yeah. By the time you get to the 90s, that second generation are not looking to have that. They're forming their own gangs. They're not looking to put up that shit anymore. They're not looking to defer, waiting for that day to come. They want it now because mm. they are that they are a neoliberal offspring. Mm. They are from here. And that they their habitats, their social capitals are all about enjoyment now. They see their white counterparts and they want it now. Okay, another provocation. So yeah, go on. Pro- yeah, 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 the, yeah, go the, on. And, but, but part of that, um, and we can look across so many of our families and communities. Mm. Part of that is a connection or a, a growing recognition that though we live here and we may have been born here, we have not been accepted or we have been invited to come and work. Our elders were invited to come and work, but we are not of here. Man, the footballers in the, in the summer kind of mm. you, you, we we all knew what was coming we saw it happening we saw the response to um mm. to it happening um and then we got on with our days to a certain extent and there is there is something in the in in the englishness <laughs> of of the way in which our our um our communities begin to engage with where we live and where we are where and I'm part of this as well partly I remember, so I remember the looks that you get. I remember getting followed around. I haven't received the benefits of being able to claim my Englishness as my own. We were talking Gilroy and that that question of being black and British is one that I am yet to reconcile. I, I struggle with the British bit. I definitely struggle with the English bit. British is a, it is like administration. I need my British passport in order for me to, travel get around the world i need this suite of identification to be but when we're talking about quote-unquote britishness or being british i think when paul was talking about being black and british we're talking about something else and that is work that is that is everything but at the same time it's not something that is available i don't believe it is available to me i hope it might be available for my kids maybe Uh, but and, and this is the thing i think listen I understand, like, 
I'm from the ends, right? And I'm always gonna be from the ends. That's my habitat. It doesn't matter where I go. And that's that's when I say I'm black British. I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm more specific than I'm an East Londoner. This of my shoes. This is this is what <laughs> this is this is why I operate. I'm an East Londoner, and where I travel, I'm just bringing my East Londoners with me. So I I'm not black British. I'm not even a fucking Londoner. I'm, I'm something more specific. And you're like I said, so we're talking about Stuart Hall's idea of new ethnicities and all those kind of things. Said the idea of hybridity, this cross fertilization of making you something. There's something unique, always something you always becoming. And this is where we're at, right? So it's hard to talk about essentials when we talk about essentializing, when we talk about the we, mm. but we have to when we have these big conversations, right? Because we have to identify one who we're speaking about. But in actuality, it's this process of becoming all the time. So will that Britishness, that Britishness, like you said, is a tool for me. It, it gets me certain places. It's that kind of social capital. It's mm. that, that thing that gets me through the door in certain places. But when I'm in those spaces, I don't really want to be there. Like when I worked in the city, I thought I had to be there. Uh, I don't want to be there. Where I want to be is in the ends. And when I speak, and when I'm looking at drill music now, it's, this is a way of the young kids operating in the spaces where they want to be. Whereas before, our parents are preparing us for a world that doesn't want us. And by rights, you've spoken about yourself, you didn't really, really want to be there. No, not at all. You do random jobs, you do all these random things. I've done all these random jobs to find a space where I wanted it to be. But I ended up in a space where I thought I had to be, get all the things that go along with it, money, the cars, the clothes, but I wanted to be in the ends. One of the things that I've kind of been concerned with, particularly with my own research that looks at how black people manage and negotiate living in predominantly white places in England, struggling to be in the spaces in which race and gender of kind way race operates and gender and is also gendered becomes heightened means that these spaces where we quote unquote want to be have even more pressure on them to to receive us which actually in itself can i think sometimes create more pain what i mean by that is like as a people like we are like imperfect like mm. we're human beings so like it's like when you find out that like another black person has wronged you like or like when you like feel disappointed like when you hear something from like someone that's in government that looks like us like you because you try and like find spaces in which you see yourself when you feel re reflected back it puts more pressure on those spaces to see, be you're 100 percent right so in those spaces yeah. where you see them little drill beefs and all that, or you see, even in like, in where we've got like um, sound clashes and all them places that people get upset because when another black person does something bad to them, yeah, take it to heart, man. Yeah, it and hurts. It, and then we start talking about those old tropes like, listen, we need to build our own. Why are you, mm. why are you against your own people? It's always someone who looks like you is against you. All those old tropes. Yeah. But again, we reach out that humanness, but it's that pressure we put on, in, on that space because we don't want, it's a space that accepts us as who we are. Mm. And so you feel betrayed when someone does something human in it. Mm. Which they're always going to do, right? Mm. And I guess almost the, the segue is, I live in Devon now. <laughs> yes. That's the, that's the segue Devon, I wanted to make. Yes. And you're speaking about your, your research about rural spaces and, and speaking about ends and being, being home. Anyone who... I'm at home, which is why I'm speaking like this. Hmm. You were because we're in London. We're in now, London. Yeah. I'm back in London after a couple of years post pandemic and hmm. the rest of it. But also, I'm with family, so hmm. I'm, I'm speaking freely. I'm not censoring my tone. The bass is reverberating. I'm sure hmm. it is, isn't it? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, the, the the 
and and I moved. So I moved to Devon in 2015, partly because um, I wasn't getting any love in the teaching world where I was. I was a great teacher. I've been told I was a great teacher. I wasn't getting promoted. No one was willing to accept me as a senior leader or anything else. And so I applied for a job outside country and got it and went. I had went to the job. I went to the school on the day of the interview, and then I went there again on on the first day. And I I was completely ill prepared for, as you described, that being in a rural space. I am not about that life. I'm not built for that life. And I was ill prepared for it. And and the thing that probably um, got me even more was I thought that because of that grounding that I'd referred to at the beginning of the podcast. Look, I'm from Hackney, I got I can so I don't have to worry about food. I can make cook up rice. I can make saltfish. I, I, I can I even found out where all the shops were so I could get my bits. Mm. It's fine. I could create a little um an oasis of my home. Mm, mm. Now my kids get to see um artwork and listen to music and watch TV programs that reflect them. Mm. But I did not think about but what about me? I'm the person who is maybe co-navigating that this shit but but what about me i am constantly going into be i'm going to constantly be in a space where i am the international representative re- representative of all people of color but in particular that are the physical embodiment of black man mm-hmm. um and that is back to that pressure we were talking about on community that that is pressure that is and you can't do anything about it because you are powerless We've been speaking about power. You are powerless to do anything about it. But I then, rec- but I guess very quickly, I recognised that process of grounding that I had had from mum, from community. The fact that I was maybe brought up to not think I was special, but to recognise the power of what I had. The, the, A black sense, sense of self. That yeah. sense of self yeah. meant I can land in this place, which is completely alien to me, and I will still be myself. And listen, love oneself. You can yeah. move differently, fam. Like, listen... When I, when I moved to Scotland or when I worked in the city, it doesn't matter where I got, I was told, I was brought up with the idea that I could go anywhere I want. People are going to say shit, but fuck them. Fuck them. I don't business. Like, I, I, like when I, I got to the rave scene, so when I'm moving to raves, I went to Strawberry Sunday. These people, this, for the white boys, they're going to say so. So what I always felt quite interesting is I felt I could go anywhere. A white, an all white rave, it didn't matter to me. But if you said it to the white guys, would you go to an all black rave? Never. No. The horror and I said to them, but this is where I operate all the time. I operate this in these spaces all the time. Mm. When I'm going to work, when I'm going to school, when, I, when I'm getting on the bus, when I'm mm. getting the train, this is the world I'm operating, but I can go anywhere. And when I spoke to my dad about this, he said it was important to him to bring up my, his child with a sense of self. You can go anywhere. This society is yours too. In that there's a sense of, a sense of empowerment there, right? It's a sense of like, on the flip side of being powerless, I recognize I have power. And so the power, if we talk about it in a kind of social term, is that I can, I can dislocate and adopt new new forms of habitats, and I can acquire them. And, and these new dispositions I acquire, they don't change who I am at my core, but it just gives me more tools to navigate and speak to these people and relate with relate to these people. Right. So I'm going to bring in a provocation, Come words of, in the words of Malcolm, because I think that what we're talking about here, I'm not going to go into the gendered element. I'm just going to mm. talk about, let's, let's just yeah. talk about race and place. So I think that I agree with everything you guys are saying. And I think that this speaks to Bell Hooks's work in particular, thinking about her essay on representing whiteness in the black imagination. So what Bell Hooks talks about in this essay is how black people that 
and herself in particular, thinking about her family, that grow up in rural spaces. So she, her context is North America, but I think it applies to England. There is something about talking about whiteness with other black people that in itself empowers us to both love oneself, but equally navigate the fuckery that is racism <laughs> and white supremacy. So obviously we're talking about the groundings you guys had and like the family you had around you. Patricia Hill Collins talks about black mothers and other mothers thinking about like other black men being around you, all that stuff. We cannot underestimate the importance of representation in both primary and secondary socialisation and how important that is for Tisa, you talking about you feeling like you can move in these spaces. So what I want to say to this about, what I want to say about this point is why and relate it to Devon and your move there is that I would be interested into how your children are finding it. Because one thing that I think is very interesting, like black people have always lived in rural and suburban places within England, but obviously we're going to see a lot more of us go to these places. And these are us as black people, as adults making these decisions to go there. But I would argue that the people that are at the forefront of negotiating whiteness or hegemonic whiteness within these rural spaces are black kids are young people and I am not sure that it is fully possible to garner as a loving black sense of self by just having your family members with in your house whilst living in these places and that isn't so we deserve to have space and clean air it's not to say that we shouldn't go live in these places I'm just saying the things that you guys are talking about here I'm not sure it's possible to get that for black kids in these rural spaces. And that is the ongoing tension. Yes. That's that's the, your way. I I justify it to myself and I often justify it to others. So I I talk about the, the reality that actually my family only lived in cities when they landed here. Mm. We never knew about this city business is not, it wasn't our historical environment. Island people. Island, Island people. Yeah, yeah. So we grew, we had a connection with, with land. And so I, I make a nice pretty justification for the move by talking about, well, you know, my kids get to access land and they get to play. And during lockdown, they went for walks and mm. they can identify birds and, you know, all of this stuff, as well as listening to whatever. But the fact remains that the island is an island. You are a, you are a hostage because within your boundaried space, as beautiful, as um, affirming as it is, we know when you're talking about primary and secondary education, usually we, f- we find other people to affirm our existence. We find other people to, um, who act as our heroes. We, I only now talk about my mum as being really, really, really important. I'm pretty sure when I was in primary and secondary school, I would have spoken about, um, who I said, Mr. Olgaro. Mm-hmm. My, my school teacher who was my height six foot three the first black male that I'd seen in a position of any authority who literally looked like me in the school system and it literally transformed and blew our minds we couldn't we couldn't we had to process that mm-hmm. and so um, I though I'm saying all of this oh you know I, I, we, I, I tell myself the story my tr- the truth is I've got my fingers crossed mm-hmm. constantly and I'm hypervigilant and constantly guarding against the, the, the ever-present threat, which is just outside my front door. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you have a play date, it gets invited into your house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's, it's in your house, the TV, the music. So these representation of what it means to be, quote unquote, black, it's in there. So I, equally, I've seen, so with like, see, when you're talking about the kids, so when I've gone back to my dad's in that space there, my sister's kids, they're from the, they're not from London, they're from the outside. They're fully middle class, right? But what's interesting is the one that's just gone to secondary school, more recently, he's speaking, he started speaking slang. My guy, my guy, my guy. Love, 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 love. <laughs> That's how a man's speaking to me. But I said to him, I said, bro, you, you're not from them, bitch. You get me? Like, you're not like that. No, don't say that to him. No, 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 no. Like, the way he's speaking, like, he wants to get into fights and stuff. Oh, like, okay, said, you're fine. You're not from them, bitch. Okay. When you're speaking to people, then people like, yeah. you're, you're moving to people in a certain way. Okay. And you're meeting with people in secondary school mm-hmm. who have a different, they're from them, bitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they know you're not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, but, but I can see how he's adopting these different identities because he's trying to navigate that space. Because yeah. just now he just got bullied. Yeah. So he's trying to learn how to navigate those spaces because those identities are out there, right? Yeah. The geography has become important. Mm. Yeah. And so almost offering a parallel between that quote-unquote urban-suburban mm-hmm. rural rural connection. And so if I think about the young people that I um, taught when, when, I was in, when I was in schools in Devon, inevitably white... Look at me, I'm doing it now. I'm mm. going to do it. White working-class boys. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, hang on, no. We'll, lose, we'll use Alison Phipps' really great way of talking about class... Well, I think working-classness. Working-class boys that happen to be white. That's... Yeah, we like that. We I like that. that. Alison. Big so, Alison. Alison. Big so, Alison. So this... this this um, so community these com- this this community of white working working class boys working class white. boys who were, and girls who who are, are white were already listening to grime drill they were already wearing air force ones they already had an interest in um L- <laughs> tight <laughs> tight air force ones tight air force ones they they the the power of the internet meant they were interested in elements of quote unquote black culture that they wouldn't have had access to anywhere else because it's not in their kind of geography and so um me then being in the classroom as an educator from ends mm. um they and and i think it's important that because you're from ends that does not mean that you automatically become the arbiter of what is the realness and what isn't mm. there is a level of authenticity that has to come from your manifestation in the in whatever space that you're in people can see young people can see if there is still mud on your shoes they know if you're faking or not um, and it's really important to kind of um, honor the integrity of all of our young people mm-hmm. um, but these young these young people would be asking me questions just ask me but what was what was it like and it started off with oh you know does do people carry knives every single day and then it becomes it moves into the nuances of a loving valuing of our experience and i and i struggled with that was part of that 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 struggle because you're because it, what, what what i'm not here to be your arbiter of blackness mm-hmm. i'm not here to be that for you i came here to just be a school teacher mm-hmm. um but once again we recognize that you know what we might be in a space paid as a school teacher but we are doing something very different we are operating on a range of different levels and what gilroy says is, is quite important the idea of authenticity essentializes you, right? Ah. So the, there, there seems if you're if you don't do it, you don't mean to do it. But if, when you walk in a certain clothes, you present yourself in a certain way. They think there's something authentic about that. Yeah. So you might have dreadlocks. Oh, there's something. He's an authentic black man, right? And that, <laughs> so you, and they're and they're distanced geographically and mentally from 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 a city or a black person means that you have become that essential black man. Absolutely. And so if we then, um, I'm going to zoom in into, into kind of some of my research. Mm. If I begin to think about 
3% of all educators in this country are in schools, in primary, secondary schools, um, are, are, <laughs> are people of colour, mm-hmm. ethnic minorities. I never, I, I'm not going to use the acronym mm. ever. <laughs> uh, um, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of people in a lot of school spaces because we're, we're not all in Bristol, Manchester, London, Birmingham, mm. sorry, any other cities that mm. I, I didn't name, towns and cities I didn't name check. And so in order to navigate those dynamics that are happening, not just with the young people, but happening with the families, happening with the leadership, happening with your peers, you're constantly working as an educator if you choose to. Mm. Part of my research thinks about how we relate, we doing that self-work, that that it's easier for us to walk into school spaces perhaps and leave our funds of knowledge to quote Lewis Moll. Look at me, I put a quote in nineteen ninety two. Leave ourselves outside of the space, and um, because if we do that, we protect the sanctity of those spaces, whether it's households, whether it's our community organisations. We might draw upon some of those things in our teaching, but we're going to stick to the national curriculum or whatever the, the departments say that we should we should do. But in reality, if you look at, and it doesn't matter whether you're in primary school, secondary school, early years, whether you're in HE, we feel that the magic in our learning, in our teaching, in our engagement with our students happens when maybe that stuff doesn't matter. Maybe we've found a little space, we're in the pocket to use jazz, like literally where we're all of a sudden we've planned this amazing lesson, but something has happened in this environment that we've created together. And that is where true learning, everybody is engaged with this moment or these moments, these series of moments. Everybody, we've, you can literally see the movement of people. And that is what in many ways educators are searching for. That's what we want to do in every single lesson. But in order to do that within those spaces, like in a rural space, is hard work for the educator. And if you're not prepared to do that hard work, it doesn't mean that you're not an effective teacher according to um, any of the teaching standards or Ofsted or anything else. But when we're talking about being an educator, I think we are talking about something greater than just being somebody who delivers content in a room. Yeah, We're talking about something else when I was going back to the idea of you having that power, so in those spaces, you're talking to some white people who ask you, to us, some dumb fucking questions, bro. <laughs> some dumb fucking questions. Stuff about... Including uh, uh, kids. Yeah, mm. it's, it's, it's some dumb questions, right? But the kids, I'm willing to, because they're kids, right? But adults ask me dumb shit, but I'm willing to, I'm willing, I'm willing to talk to them about it. And that's what you, and that's what I feel with being educated. I'm willing to have that that dialogue with you. I'm willing to enter that dialogue. And sometimes it's frustrating, but I'm willing to. Ch- and then so when they start to invariably, the question will come and say, "Well, you're not you're not like the essential black person." I right. thought that essential the, uh, this this abstract idea of a black person. But then sometimes I will say to you, well, "What did you expect? What did you expect?" And this is we had that, that nuance there, that spectrum of of who we were talking about the essential this we. We're not talking about a we. There's a there's a multitude of us, right? So so my question is, said, well, what do you what do you what do you expect a black person in Japan to be like? Is he going to be like me, or is he going to be Japanese, essentially like for that Japanese culture? Yeah, and this is it's really important, isn't it, to think about where this tension or where these dialogues are happening. So I'd say in the case of um, Malcolm, where he's talking about. teaching in Devon there is an intensification of the white gaze and I guess what you're saying here is that to what extent 
can we deal with that level of double consciousness that you have to keep reproducing and engaging with and engaging with over and over and over again like we have to have a thick skin anyway as black people mm. but black teachers <laughs> in rural spaces you guys are make you're making it happen you're on the front line because these are the spaces where britain reifies its englishness its britishness mm. its national face and you are there very, the very presence of you there in that classroom is resistance to that yeah you make it you, you make me sound good there no, <laughs> you make me sound good there it is it's true no, it's I'm, big I'm, man I'm it's, big, it's, big, big, it's big. being recorded yeah. yeah it's not and I'm not going to offer a provocation I'm hopefully I'm going to offer an affirmation of some yeah. of the words that we've we've said here today we have to accept that when you're in a not just a rural space, but maybe in a in a majority white space as an educator, and it doesn't matter, like I say, whether you're talking early early years or in in Haiti, even if you shed some of those um, uh, shed your cultural skin mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to describe it as, it becomes much more about what you represent to other people within that within that space. Um, but at the same time, we have to also recognise, and within education in particular, primary and secondary education, there's a real challenge challenge with this. We don't talk about that myriad, that that continuum of black educators. Just calling, just describing ourselves as black educators is almost a misnomer because we don't unpick that. We don't get into well, what we, what what are we talking about when we're talking about black? To quote. Stuart Hall. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mentioned Stuart Hall earlier. Mm. Um, so as part of being part of that front line and part of that vanguard mm. is that, A, you expect to take the knots. That's what you... It's not just what you trained for within the teacher education and development spaces, but you trained for in terms of your people probably said to you, listen, you know it's hard out there. You mm. know, So you trained for it. When you meet that other person of colour in your department, they're going to have the conversation with you. The head nod. They're, you say. they're gonna have, and if you don't, re- or or sorry to come in, they're not gonna look at you because if you, they look at you, they're gonna catch us out. They're gonna right. find out. They're gonna find out. <laughs> <who's> <laughs> like that. Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. She's laughing because hundreds. I just yeah. feel like this happens. Yeah. Like, this happens quite a lot in academia. Like I'm not gonna look at you because if I look at you, they'll think we're forming an alliance against I'm, them. <laughs> I'm definitely not looking at you in the corridor. I'm not gonna look. Don't when we're in that department meeting. Don't even bother look at me yeah, yeah, yeah. because listen, yeah. It's, don't it's, talk to me about anything black. It's Don't dangerous talk to me. out here in these streets. Yeah. We we all and and it is clear, even though there's no oh, you don't really speak to yeah. Jamal. Why don't you? Why don't why don't you? You don't really speak to you share the same food, don't you? Like you yeah, share the same food. <laughs> Listen. And, and, but there is a but of course at as as you spend time in that department, as you get you you encounter the different experiences of being in a space which is fundamentally designed to to um, to um, harm you. Mm-hmm. And I know we haven't really got into that, but mm-hmm. we got we if we are talking about what we're we talking about when we're talking about blacks, we have to really talk about what we're we talking about when we're talking about this education system that we're busy trying to transform because mm. we're trying to transform something, but is it? What is this education? Is it mm. is it violence? Yeah. Anyway, we know that it's a violent space for for um, quote unquote black educators, um, um, and so there is a level of precarity. We know that in t- statistically, in terms of contracts, in terms of progression, in terms of opportunities and funding, every, you name it, every metric that there is, the precarity is there. And so, if you are in the spot, Tony Sewell just came to my mind, didn't it? Mm. Oh. If you are Sewer. in the spot, people people do a range of wild stuff to protect themselves. 
and I ain't apologising for Tony Sewell, Space Lady. Yeah, I ain't apologising <laughs> for nobody. <laughs> <laughs> listen, yeah, yeah. listen. Yeah, yeah. I ain't apologising for nobody. But you, you see the wild. You, we've got plenty of examples of the wildness people do to protect themselves in terms of their proximity to some of that power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit of that that stardust, and so. Coming back to that, being in the front line, the kind words that you, you kind of said, I go straight back to the elders, the ancients, the community that raised me. They picked you. Mm. They, quite often, people see something in us that we are never going to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're never going to catch it until much later on when we have grown, developed, shifted, changed, done 100 jobs. Life has happened. Mm. And I would, and I and it could be a chicken and egg situation, but I would make the argument for many of the black educators that I have encountered across the country in rural spaces, in hard spaces, Oxford, mm. Cambridge, University of Exeter, it doesn't matter. And further afield as well, we act like, I'm, I'm digressing, getting excited. <laughs> but but um, as much as much of our focus is around the UK, because that's our, we're familiar strangers in this space, quoting Stuart Hall again. Mm-hmm. Um, actually... If you if you land in France, Italy, Spe- North, mm. and speak to our diaspora family in those spaces, and th- speak to educators in that, those spaces, the themes are common. The looks still happen. The um, the negotiation the negotiation is real and continues to and continues to to happen. And probably I think in terms of my work. That's something that I think is interesting. Mm. Maybe that's part of that vanguard movement. We have to keep on going into spaces that we're not expected to be in. And so no one expects you to go to Lithuania to go and speak to black educators there mm. and look at some, what's happening there? Well, that's an interesting space. Or mm. go to Italy. They're not, they don't expect us to do that. But then I guess my point would be, I guess all I think all of us in the room are trying to do that type of thing you're talking about, Malcolm. But my provocation or what I am trying to always put forward on this show is I think part of freedom is that black people shouldn't it not all of us have to do that and I'm very much up for uh, notions of like a, a type of anarchy basically as in like separating yourself you don't have to do this representation you don't have to go in this space part of freedom is not feeling like you have to be part of it all the time and that you have to negotiate it because it isn't the the wins are few and far between <laughs> so this is why i this is why i start looking at drill because i'm looking at kids creating their own forms of social capital mm. their own forms of financial capital to to go back into the mainstream and make their way and achieve that materialistic aspirational lifestyle dream and it's in those spaces now where they're saying fuck the system mm. i'm gonna do my own thing that's troubling to people. So again, you, this is why you have a, a clampdown by the authorities. This is why you have a, a pushback for some, from, from some of our own community. There are certain sections of yeah. black diasporas that are incredibly conservative. Yeah. The only reason why, well, one of the key reasons why as a people we're considered to ne- not necessarily operate conservatively, economically, socially, is because we were forced into mm. being like, mm. forced into being like, quote unquote socialist because of how racist empire this country was do you know what I mean so like I think it's really important you bringing up that point T because it's part understanding that there are there are black Tories as much as it pains us like it's the reality but like and it's it was always been that way it's always but if you hear some of the like some of the kind of 
they're not even willing to give these kids a chance. There's a new culture saying like, speaking about the politics of representation, why are these kids choosing to represent themselves in, and they're, they're going back to, again, an essentialized version of what a black person is. So these kids might speak about violence, but they're saying that's how black people are. But that's a trope they've picked up from mm. the mainstream, right? Mm. So it's about these. But is it about reclaiming that? It's like, yeah, I might use that for myself. They might right. even use it, but they use it yeah. abstractly. Yeah, it's it's an art form. Yeah, like, if all of them were that bad, society will crumble. Mm. But it's just an art form that kids talk about. It's just mm. like just like with hip hop or like with reggae. Not all people are are yardmen or roadmen because they can't be. Mm. There might be three or four. But most people use it as an art form, as a way of communication, right? Mm. I guess one of the really interesting points that we have to begin to, um, we're, we're almost articulating here is, I have a saying which is, sometimes we have to think about, it sounds ridiculous, playing our position. And what I mean about that, in terms of these struggles, some people are going to be out there, vanguard. Some people are going to be fly, flying ahead, Prof Stuart Hall. The reason why we're name-checking, quoting, talking about is because he flew ahead and left a trail for us. Mm-hmm. Some might go and follow some someone else. Bell Hooks is another. We're still mm-hmm. we're gonna in thirty years we're still gonna be thinking about but wait a minute, she said that when? So not everyone's gonna be prof mm. prof hall, not everyone's gonna be bell hooks, not everyone's gonna be Paul Gilroy. Um, even though our almost our society makes us actually believe that, that we all, can be. We can be. Whereas if we think about our cultures and our communities, we Everybody does, historically, people have done their job, their roles, done their jobs proudly, valued, valuing on behalf of the whole community. I guess I just described Wakanda, right? To a certain extent. No, but I think but, that, but I, there's a truth in that. There's yeah, a yeah. truth in that. But I think Christina Sharp in the wake picks that up. Like there's, there's a multitude of black bodies, right. right? From the Atlantic to everywhere that we build upon. So these narratives, meta narratives, smaller narratives are building to a bigger thing. And it's a crescendo, this big story that's it's key, it's unfolding, it's becoming. That's what fills me with joy when I see these kids and it's the potential, it's the pregnant potential I see in them. But before, I think sometimes the previous generations are trying to want to shut that down because it doesn't conform to their idea of what success is. So when I started doing the street thing, my mom was getting concerned because there's, there's tropes out there that I could end up in a bad way. And so they, they try to limit, but now we're in a different space and social media, I think technology plays a very big part in this because it's, it's something that's that's never been wasn't in the in the mix before. But this idea that technology is so diffuse that you can create things without much money. Yeah. So again, drill and grime are quite are on the forefront of this, producing something that doesn't have to go through those normal systems. But again, and that's part of um, check out our paper in soundings, by the way, guys. Whoop, whoop, that's part of what we're trying to say in terms of podcasting. We have always already been producing listen, listen. on the margins as find way and as these are about finding ways to express ourselves. See, and it is scholarly and it is of value. When we do these things, they don't take us seriously. They don't take us seriously. So when we carve these niches out, in these difficult circumstances, when we choose to take ourselves out of those situations that we know are harmful for us and make our own thing, people only, they want to buy it back when it reaches like... Or they want to steal it. Yeah, <laughs> one, one of the two. And that's, and, that, and, this, is, and this, is what's, this is what upsets me. When I see like it's in, in our space, in the podcast space, or if it's dry, grime or drill, these kids carving out new spaces. Yeah. Doing new forms of education. But part of what, then that's part of what, They've, what we've always done as part of what their elders have done the part of it's always always and, yeah and again I'm, uh, 
thinking back to those spaces that I referred to that were part of my gra- my grounding, mm. um, which kind of helped me on the journey to become become an uh, educator. Those spaces where the the hope, the possibility of transformation, belief can be kind of encouraged and and to a certain extent sustained um, are really really important. If I think about black educators in particular, my mum was part of um, I think the National Union of National Education Union recently had its like 30th anniversary of black educators. Um, and my mum was one of the first little group of, you know, oh, one of those little, little group. It, it's amazing that the spaces exist. But we have to be brave enough. And this has been part of our histories. We have to be brave enough to maybe destroy those spaces and allow them to be rebuilt and often by our young people. Yes. So that is almost... For me, and I'll, um, if I think of spaces, like, if I think of that supplementary school movement, I talk about it with such love. It doesn't exist today. Those spaces had, to, in many ways, they went because of precarity, but they maybe had to go to enable something new to happen. That period of time that I spoke 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 about at the beginning, and I guess almost because of the the way it's important to mention it because of the way it impacted Devon and the Southwest, mm-hmm. but the movement for Black Lives. Um, and the events of Colston and that that weekend, June twenty twenty, yeah, done. Oh, right, June twenty twenty. It was it. I guess I saw a different. I saw a different aspect of it because um, my news only tells me about Truro mm. and Barnstable. And Newton Abbott. Newton Abbott. Oh, yeah, yeah. Torquay. Torquay. Come on. I know the rules. Have you read um, Caroline Knowles' stuff about... Because she's from... She's a sociologist. She's from... Um, she's from the men's. De- she's from the men's. Okay, okay. But obviously she writes about race and she talks about um, rural Devon and like returning yeah. home and like imperialism. Anyway, yeah, check it. I'll put it in the episode notes. Okay, Caroline um, Knowles. Shout out to Prof Pat. Knoxlow as well. Who oh yeah. Oh yeah. Pat. People, yeah. Legend. People, yeah. Um, and so, so, so yeah. There's. So there was something that I witnessed. I'm in my house, shielded, not shielded, but protecting myself from COVID. I'm. I'm not going out there on them streets in Devon. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm. And I'm witnessing these white children saying Black Lives Matter, saying Black Lives Matter, telling their families, telling, shouting at police. And I couldn't quite uh, trying to rationalize it. Then I saw Colston, not uh, the, the the end of Colston going into the water. Well, not the end, the middle bit. But Colston, the image of Colston being rolled down the ra- rolled down towards the harbour with these white kids dancing, singing, rolling. I mean, I had joy in my heart. Don't get me wrong. But there was something really powerful about that image. Something has happened that we maybe didn't quite catch. Gary Young called it on this show the yeah, pollination. pollination. Although we're seeing th- that we're seeing like things rock be rolled back and the more reactionary accounts of it, you can't. What happened? You can't take that away. Can't, can't be unseen. But, Cannot be unseen. But can, you, but, but can you understand the horror now, right? So when we're talking about the idea of letting kids destroy what, we, what, what we've idealized and put on a pedestal, so talking about my thing, they call me a Marvel fascist, right? Because I love comics, the purity of it. Uh-huh. But when I see these new fans, I think, who the fuck are you? Yeah. You just joined the other day. Like George Succession. Right. George comes in at season three. <laughs> I've been there, I've been there since season one, fam. You get me? I'm, I'm an OG in this game. Yeah. So is it possible for, when, when you become, to create that kind of distance, because you have an idealised version of what education is. I have an idealised version, whatever it is. Of what, history. What, of history. Once you start putting uh, age on it, you look at it a different way. So when you see these kids fucking that shit up you're like 
what the fuck? Listen, go back inside, get online, go back on TikTok and do your thing, fam. But that's what we want to happen as quote unquote. (laughs) Part of, of, and and maybe part of the reimagining, part of that transformation. I think about education. um, Part of the work that you do as well Mm. in and around Drew is, you know what, sometimes when we're all in the room and creating together, that's when, or reimagining together, or rebuilding together, or learning from each other, that's maybe what what we're. That's maybe to a certain extent what we want. There has to be that transfer of intergenerational knowledge, understanding. But sometimes because of the internet, and the kids are gonna do. They already googled that stuff. They already know who Rosa Parks is, Mary Seacole. They don't want to hear about that. I know, but but, but what what if their kids say to you, "We just don't care about the stuff that you value." But listen, so I'm going to roll back here. I'm always on the kids' side, sorry. Love the the youth. The thing, that the problem with this debate and this conversation, not the problem with us talking about this, but the problem with how it plays out um, within society and thinking about the spaces that you're talking about carving out together, Malcolm, about reimagining, there's always some dickhead in the room. um, And it's usually an adult that brings in a contrarian point that isn't from a place of history, knowledge, understanding or learning. It's from a place of grandstanding. It's from a place of racism. It's from a place of a colonial mindset. And that's one of the things that has surprised me. And it shouldn't have surprised me so much in the past year when we've seen this rollback of what we saw last summer. The debates that you want to have with me are not that they're not centred around an equitable exchange and they're simply you putting your values that do not make sense, as Gary said on this show, you're actually saying you don't want any more history because what we're saying is we want more history and we want young people to lead and engage in more history. You're saying, no, history stops here at 1945 when we we won the war. (laughs) That's it. There was no madness in the empire. If they was, they needed it, they deserved it. We, we're we're civilised. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I feel like. And it surprises you how who these dickheads are that do this. It surprised me every time because it's not just your far-right yeah. people. It's no. the people, it's your liberals, you know it's your is? well-meaning people that are like, oh, I think it's gone too far. Who? What? It, learning? No, listen. How has learning gone too far? No, but no, but it's the idea that these people, to introduce a bit of Marx, these people introduce, they know their structure. So when a person, I'm not talking about historical, I'm talking about power. Yeah. I'm talking about where it's invested. So I know more than you about this thing. You've just come into this power thing, but I know the structure. So I'm telling you, we don't want more history. We just want this history. Yeah, that's what they say. So be honest. Don't tell me this is an equitable debate. Be honest. So you're starting from a place of, I don't want your history. This is the history that we want for this reason. So start from there. But again, but they're speaking, most people, they're speaking in code. No one talks about this place being openly racist, openly gender. So you're talking in the codes that, that you're going to have to learn to understand. But then when you obviously, as you guys know, like when you when you find the gaps in their epistemology, which they taught us, they malfunction. And they start telling you you're being aggressive. Well, well, or they start well, telling well, you. Well, what did I tell you? The worst thing they ever did was teach us to read. The worst thing you ever did was teach me to read. Because yeah. I'll finish you, fam. Yeah. I'll read all your books, fam, and eat you, fam. We know you better. Malcolm. Any final words on this main the main episode? Any final words? Give thanks, family, for inviting me. That's one. Malcolm, this was so affirming. Um, <laughs> what? You know what? It almost feels like you're supposed to leave with... You know when you don't know if you're going to catch people again? So um, one of the things I was always brought with, if you don't know if you're going to catch people again, you give the information quickly. It's like, yeah. I, I did, like you know, we don't... 
Mm. It's that idea of we don't write stuff down. Yeah. Um, and I guess what's truly affirming is it's not that we're, we're and we were always told, oh, we don't write our histories, we don't tell our stories. But in reality, what this is, is an example of we do tell our stories, we do share them orally, we do write them down, we do write the books, we transform the knowledge that you lot told us to transform, and we literally have the ability to save everybody. Oh, I've been, I've been, I've been saying, we, we can, we can say we save everyone. Not just Not we're just saving everybody. everybody. Listen, like like Neo, fam. We're like Neos. Done we're that. like Neos, fam. That's what it is. It's the Matrix, fam. It's that's real. That's what we're here for. We, real. We're, we're here to save everyone. everybody. We are not. And just... that is, and that is why black the black radical tradition is so threatening globally because we're taking everyone Listen, with we're us. on the list George we've made the list the government's coming for us everybody. now we've made the list fam. Listen, everybody's uh, coming everybody's listeners, coming thank you so much hopefully you've stayed till the end of this episode um, you guys tend to save the whole the whole episode actually looking at our stats um, so yeah I'm, I hope you all get to listen to that those amazing words from Malcolm just then and the whole episode Malcolm's um, been sick <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this week. Um, if you are a patron, head over to Patreon now. And we've got a little mini side for you. Malcolm's going to stay in the studio with us. But yeah, thank you so much, Malcolm, for joining us this show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Like, oh, you're getting a round of applause. Give facts, everybody. Give and facts, the surviving slightly mic drop, of X-Men. course. He's in the arc. He's in the arc and the X Men. And the X Men. Okay, we'll see you next week, guys. Bye. Before we close off the. Uh episode i am the producer and i would like to give a round of applause for the now doctor chantel yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> listen listen what? no corrections fam no no corrections fam i thought i was gonna get through the no, whole listen, episode listen. without you bringing it up man has to drop it that's like an a star star business a star star business well i mean this from the bottom of my heart i genuinely mean this there is absolutely no way I would have finished this PhD without Surviving Society listeners and guests and the Surviving Society broad network and family, but also my brothers, Tiso and George. So thank you, you so this, much. Man. I'll invoice you. George said he'll invoice me. Right, bye guys. See you next week. Bye. George, I can't believe you got that in. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 